here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to get into God's Word. So wouldn't, would you guys mind opening up to the book of Mark is where we're at? And uh, again, like I said, if you guys are new here, I'll kind of get you up to speed as to where we're at. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've been uh, making our way through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, you guys need some lights, don't you? We'll get some lights turned on for you so you can read. Um, um, and we've been kind of going through the Gospel of Mark. We started back in October, and uh, we've been making our way through this great uh, book. And really, in short, what it's about is it's the story of Jesus uh, being told from an angle, from a perspective of Jesus having to be identified, or Jesus being identified as a king. So what I want to do tonight, we'll be taking a look at a story, or two stories, I, sh- I should say, that Jesus actually spe- speaks himself. He speaks about what it means, what the kingdom of God that he's bringing forth is all about. So I figured kind of what I'll do right now is I'll start by reading the passage that we'll be taking a look at here tonight, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work, and uh, before we begin to really dive in and take a look at it, we'll begin to take a look at a couple elements with the story, first and foremost, that may be a little bit culturally out of touch for us, not because the Bible's out of touch, but because in a lot of ways we are a culture that has grown uh, distant from certain elements that the Bible's going to talk about. Hopefully that might make, make some sense to you guys as we begin to look at it in a second here. So let's take a look at the passage. So we're in Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick it up tonight about verse 26. I'll read down to about verse 34. You guys can follow me, follow along with me if you would, and uh, we'll pray and then we'll get to work. And he, that's Jesus, said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps, rises night and day, and, he's, and the seed sprouts and it grows, and he knows not how the seed uh, grows. Uh, he says the earth produces it by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and the full grain of ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And then he said, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it's sown into the ground, it's the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes one of the largest uh, garden plants, uh, puts forth its branches so that the birds of the air can come and make its nest within its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. God, we ask you right now that you would just help us understand what you have to speak here. Pray, God, that you would open our eyes. God, that tonight would not be merely a lesson from the Bible. God, that it wouldn't be less than that, but it would be far more than that. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and help us to see the beauty of Jesus, that you would help us understand the fact that you are a king. You're a good king. You're a loving king. And if you're a king, then there's an appropriate response that we're to have to you. And God, I pray that you would help us to really examine our hearts to make certain that the response that we give to you as a king is the right response. So Father, we invite you here to move, to work, to be glorified, and to help us, God, to dig deep, to press in, to find our joy in you. And we commit this evening in your hands and we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Some of you guys, when you read that passage, you're kind of like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Seeds, kingdoms, kings. Where's he going with this? Mustard, ground. What are all these things he's talking about? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So I want to really kind of begin to sort of preface all this by addressing at least two major areas that may be a little bit of a disconnect for us as Westerners reading this Eastern type of a book. The first thing has to do with kings, okay? Kingdoms, things of that nature. For the most part, most of you guys know that's not how our nation operates. So if you have any bit of history lesson or knowledge at all of American history, you realize that Americans and kings and kingdoms typically don't have a very good history side by side with each other, right? There was a time when we kind of threw off kings, kingdom. We didn't want kings. And uh, we basically opted out of that whole thing at some point in our history. And we never looked back. We never turned back to that. We never sort of welcomed gladly kings or kingdoms. And what's happened is, as a nation, we've created our own form of government. We've identified it or recognized it as a form of de- as democracy, whereby we all vote, and by voting, we begin to decide what types of things that we want to be able to have established and whatnot, and so on and so forth. But what's unique with regard to a kingdom, all kingdoms have a king, and the way that a kingdom operates, or the way that a kingdom works, is you have a king or a monarchy, and he makes all the decisions. 
Uh, and what happens is whatever he says is, is, becomes the law. You don't have an opportunity to uh, reason or argue or to petition against it. If you don't like it, you either get your head cut off or you just fall into suit. That's pretty much the way that kingdoms work. The problem with kingdoms is that what happens are all of us as human beings are sinners. And whenever absolute power gets placed into the hand of an absolute sinner, you have absolute problems. It always happens that way. If you ever try to figure out why is it that kingdoms always tend to sort of digress and become bad? Because all kings are made up of men, men, human beings. All human beings are sinners. And without any form of checks or balances, people will ultimately press the limits and take advantage of as much as they can to establish their own reign, to establish their own authority. And that's typically what happens. We see the same type of element take place even within our own typical lives. You see this sometimes in marriages. You see this sometimes in families. You see this sometimes even in business. People that own their own business or start their own business, if they're not good, if they're not kind, if there's not some form of checks and balances set in place, those people can become tyrants. They're not fun to work with. They're not fun to be around. If you had a friend like that, they're, they're not fun to be around. They are difficult people to deal with. And so what happens is Jesus talks and uses analogies that have to do with kings or kingdoms. Again, like I said, it's helpful for us to first of all identify that kings and kingdoms are something that for the most part culturally we are disconnected from. We don't work in that world. We don't live in that world. That's not our culture in which we live and operate. And when we typically think of kings or kingdoms, we think of like Saddam Hussein. We think of like a Gaddafi. We think of a tyrant. We think of a despot. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that he is a king. He has a kingdom. However, he's not a despot. He's not corrupted. He's not wicked. He's actually a good king. In fact, if you were to take a look at the best type of government, I think the best form of government would be what we would typically call like a benevolent dictatorship. In other words, it has a dictator who makes all the rules, but he's benevolent, meaning everything he does, he does for the good of the people. He loves the people. He cares for the people. He places the people's needs even before his own. He's willing to make sacrifices for the people. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. That's how he lives. So the first element that we need to wrestle with, deal with, is the concept of kings and kingdoms. The second thing, the second thing I think that's important, at least for us to identify, is the way that Jesus tells this story, this parable, he talks about seeds. He talks about planting. Now, for the most part, we as Westerners, a lot of us, we kind of ask ourselves, where does food come from? Some of us, our answer would be, it's an easy one, Costco or Trader Joe's or Vaughn's. And really, in short, that's incorrect. That's not where our food comes that come from. That's maybe where you ended up buying it. But food, ultimately, believe it or not, came from these things called farms. Yeah, I know. There's dirt. There's seeds. Some are way out there where most of us don't ever visit, all right? Some of you, because you go to Cal Poly, some of you are in kind of the ag department. You're familiar with that. So you know about this stuff. Guys like me, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I surfed. And that's about all that I did. And as far as understanding how farming worked and all that, it was just not a part of my world, and it may not have been a part of your world. So when Jesus starts using parables and stories about farming and seeds and plants and growth, for some reason, that can be a little bit of a disconnect. However, in that first century culture, this is how they lived. They operated and lived off of the land. It was an agrarian culture. They knew very clearly what it meant to plant seeds, to harvest uh, growth, to harvest plants, to harvest vegetables, and to harvest fruit and all of these things. This is part of the language in which they're familiar with because this was the world in which they lived in. So, again, it's healthy, I think, for us to at least identify that even though some of these concepts are a little bit removed from us, I think with a little bit of imagination, we can at least begin to enter into the world of the Bible and begin to understand some of the metaphors and stories that Jesus is trying to state. So with that being said, uh, he gives these two stories. He calls them parables about a kingdom, about his kingdom. And what he wants us to begin to understand is that his kingdom is important and his kingdom moves forward in some particular ways. So Jesus was looking for ways to identify the way his kingdom worked. This is important to note. First century Jews had an idea as to how God's kingdom would suddenly appear, what God would do. Jews were familiar with this concept of kingdom. Jews had always had a king. Their greatest king was King David. 
uh, the most wealthiest time in their history was under King David's son, whose name was Solomon. And the children of Israel, the people of Israel, had always had kings, and the kings led them. Some kings were really good, like David, even though David had his flaws, but some kings were really wicked and really evil, and ultimately it led to a division in the nation of Israel, uh, the north and the south, but what had ended up happening was the children of Israel were sold off into slavery, and they had oftentimes difficulties and hardships, and in the current time in which Jesus lived, in which the people of Israel were there, first century, they no longer had a king, but they were under the oppression of a king, Caesar. Rome had basically been uh, forced upon them, and they were uh, subjects under the emperor of Rome, and so they're they were therefore basically forced into the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so during the time that Jesus was uh, speaking and preaching and doing his miracles and doing his life, uh, all of the Jews, for the most part, had this idea, this belief that one day God would show up and God would basically throw off the yoke of oppression of all the foreigners and all the wicked doers, and then God would then reestablish his covenant with the people of Israel and then bring about sort of a universal blessing. They would be blessed people. This shows up, this false theological concept in the minds of the Jewish believers first century actually shows up in the discussions that sometimes you catch um, with Peter, James, and John, some of the disciples of Jesus. For example, there were the times when they were going around on little missionary journeys from village to village, city to city, on these little preaching engagements, following Jesus. They'd start arguing. Jesus would kind of ask them, what are you guys arguing about well jesus we're arguing as to who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom because you're going to be a king when you become king you sit on a throne i want to sit in your right hand which is the place of honor and my kid brother is going to sit on your left hand and others would fight and say no i'm going to sit on your right hand and my kid brother is going to sit on your left hand and they would always argue and fight because they had this faulty concept this faulty idea that what god was about to do was to completely break the yoke of the roman empire to completely throw the Romans off them entirely and then establish his kingdom, his reign amongst the Jewish people again. That God would judge the evildoers. Ironically, if you were to ask any first century Jew who the evildoers were, they would say the Romans. They would never look at themselves and say it's us. We're the wicked ones. We're the ones that have broken covenant with God. Most of them, for the most part, would look at the Romans or look at the nations or look at the Gentiles, every non-Jew, and say they're the bad guys. They're the ones that God who's going to break the yoke off of, off of, 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 break their yoke off of our neck. They're the ones that God will destroy, that God will crush. So they had a concept, they had an idea of God's kingdom, God's reign being reestablished in their midst, that it would show up suddenly and that God would break in the form of judgment all of the evildoers. Now, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to basically say, to some degree, your concepts and ideas of the kingdom are faulty. But the, what Jesus does, he doesn't just come right out and be like, you guys are all messed up, your theology's whacked, and I'll tell you how it's done. What Jesus does is he's very creative, and he creates these little stories. We call them parables. And he says something like this, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? And then he begins to tell a story. That's what Jesus does. And in the story... Jesus gives these little notes. He gives these little tunes to let them know by pointing to Old Testament passages that really highlight the work that God was doing. This is very important to note before we begin to take a look at the passages. What I think is really significant, really important for us to know, when we read our Bibles, we as Westerners, I think there's a tendency for us, in fact, we even call our Bible broken down into two main distinctions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's actually a very unfortunate way of reading our Bibles. Because in reality, when Jesus was alive, he didn't make any such distinguishing marks between the Old and New Testament. In other words, there was one story, one narrative. It was the narrative that began with Adam. It began with God's creation. And it went through Adam to Abraham, went through Abraham, through Moses, from Moses to the people of Israel. This ongoing narrative, this ongoing story that ultimately climaxed or culminated in Jesus. And this is the ongoing story. So what Jesus does is he teaches these little stories, but he gives these little clues. He gives these little hints referencing Old Testament passages. I've said this before, that oftentimes when you look at the teachings of Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's so well-versed in the Bible for two reasons. One, the first century Jew but secondly, it also helps when you author the very book itself. Jesus wrote the Bible. 
The point of the matter is, is he knew what he was talking about. So what he does is he oftentimes references these Old Testament passages. And because the first century was a group of people that were very familiar with the Bible, when they heard these passages that Jesus would reference, they would immediately recognize, oh, Jesus is taking us to the book of Joel, or he's referencing a passage in Ezekiel, or he's referencing a passage in Isaiah. And so it would basically serve as a purpose to cause those people listening to the message of Jesus, and their minds would immediately go back to those particular points. I've said this before, it's like hyperlinks, right? You're reading a web page, come across a little section that's blue, it's underlined, and it's a little bit emboldened. Now, we all know, because we're trained to think this way, that that's hypertext. You're meant to click it. It's not just to sit there and be static. It's dynamic. You click it, it will take you to another website or web page to give you a broader story of that. That's the way Jesus teaches. And he uses these little symbols or these little concepts or these little hints, these little texts, these little ideas, these little phrases. He throws these things out, and they immediately take someone's mind somewhere. That's what Jesus was doing all throughout these stories, all throughout his ministry. So you'll see various elements of that as we kind of read this. So what I want to do right now is I want to basically jump right in. We'll take a look at the two parables, and then I want to just simply close with a handful of kind of application about these things. So the first is this, is that Jesus is going to tell us that his kingdom, the growth of his kingdom, because he's a king, but as a king, all kings have a domain. The word domain basically means our kingdom is king's dome, domain. That's what a kingdom is. It's the domain of a king. So wherever a king exercises his role or his authority or his governance or his goodness or his kindness or whatever it is, that is his realm. It's his domain, his kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is that I'm a king and my kingdom, my king domain is moving forth. It's going out. It's going somewhere and it's affecting change. It's transforming people. We've seen Mark already identify elements of Jesus doing this throughout the Gospel of Mark because what happens is Mark tells us stories. Jesus shows up on a scene, and the guy who's been possessed by a demon is no longer possessed by a demon. Jesus speaks a word, and the demon departs. Jesus shows up on a scene, and here's a guy that's blind. Jesus touches his eyes or does something, and this guy no longer is blind. Jesus keeps doing these miracles. He keeps setting people free. He keeps changing their lives profoundly. And that's what we begin to see because Mark wants us to understand that when the king shows up, he actually undoes that which the devil has brought about. The devil has brought about disease. The devil has brought about oppression. The devil has brought about destruction. The devil has brought about um, complete defamation of a person's identity. For example, in the life of Levi or Matthew, he was a tax collector but he was a guy that everybody would have written off. Jesus was doing this with prostitutes, with harlots. Jesus was sitting down with them, and he's basically returning or restoring their dignity back to them. He was undoing what the devil was doing. Mark wants us to know that every time Jesus undoes what the devil was doing or had done, he was taking back territory or property for himself. In other words, extending, expanding his kingdom. That's what Jesus is going to talk about. So, back to the question at hand. What is Jesus' kingdom like? First of all, Jesus wants us to know that his kingdom grows automatically and will ultimately lead to divine judgment. That's my summary. It begins or it grows automatically and will ultimately lead to a divine judgment. Again, take a look at verse 26. It says this, And then he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man would scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps, rises, night and day the seed sprouts and grows, he doesn't know not how. Verse 28 says that the earth produces by itself. That little phrase, produces by itself, it's literally the Greek word, uh, automatos. We get the English word automatically. What he's basically saying is that the seed just gets planted and automatically it grows. In fact, even the harvester, or I should say even the farmer, doesn't really do anything. He doesn't need to do anything. Now, what Jesus is not saying, he doesn't... He knows that in order to have a good, decent crop, you've got to cultivate the earth, you've got to add amendments, you've got to till the soil. There's certain things that you've got to do to keep you know, all sorts of other opposition that could come into the field and destroy or ruin your crop. He understands that type of stuff. But I think the point that Jesus is making in this story is that once seed is sown, it automatically grows. 
One of the times of year that I love is right now. Like after some rains, one of the things you begin to discover anywhere you go, you just start seeing stuff growing, right? You drive through a field that for you know, a few months was nothing but dirt. You drive by again, there's all these big, massive yellow flowers that were like six feet high, and there's birds all over the place. And there's all sorts of growth going on all over the place. Who planted it? Well, nobody did. Who cultivated it? Nobody did. How's it growing? Automatically, just like God's kingdom. That's what he's saying. It just grows automatically. But what Jesus does now is he basically points forward to where God's kingdom is actually headed and where it's going. In verse 29, he gives this little statement. He says this, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So what Jesus is saying is that even though God's kingdom grows automatically, there's not really that much that needs to be done. It will grow. This, again, does not mean that God does not use people to establish, to be a part of the kingdom building process. But really, at the end of the day, is that this is a work that begins with God. It is initiated by God. God started this whole thing. It's growing automatically. It's part of his work. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by his spirit, says the Lord, out of the passage in the Old Testament. So the point of the matter is that God's kingdom is moving forward, but it's ultimately going somewhere. Because every crop, every time someone plants a crop, they always plant a crop with the end in mind. In other words, every good farmer always reverse engineers all the time. What reverse engineering is, is you just take a look in the future and you think, I want to have food by you know, this particular date. And you reverse engineer from there. So you're like, if I want to have peppers by you know, March or you know, April, I've got to start planting, you know, X amount of weeks prior to that. And what Jesus is saying is that God's kingdom is moving somewhere. It's moving forward in some particular manner, some particular end goal in mind. And it's a harvest. Now, what Jesus does is he actually quotes an Old Testament passage out of the book of Joel. It's Joel chapter 3, verse 13. And it's just this little phrase. It says this, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And this is actually a quote, if you have ever read that little passage in the book of Joel, Joel, book of Joel is not a very large book, but it's really a book about judgment and restoration. It's a book that involves God's forthcoming judgment in which he will pour out his wrath upon the enemies. But at some point, God will restore that which has been destroyed. And so Jesus uses this idiom or this metaphor of putting a sickle in and bringing about some form of judgment. So what he's saying is that, yes, the kingdom of God is growing, it's going somewhere, and yet at some point in the future, there will be a judgment. This is really important to know this, that Jesus' kingdom is actually heading somewhere. This is actually sobering. If we understand this, this actually changes the way that we view our lives and the way that we view our relationships with other people and the way that we view our relationship with God. Part of the reason why oftentimes people can go through their life with sort of this swagger, with sort of this attitude, with sort of a cockiness, is because they view themselves as an end in and of themselves. I deal with guys a lot. And one of the things that I oftentimes find with guys is one of the reasons why men can become prideful or arrogant or mistreat women or take advantage of women is because they don't have any clue whatsoever that there is a God. And this God, one day, we'll stand before him. We're accountable to him talk with women oftentimes that are married. One of the number one complaints I hear from women that are married to a guy that does not treat them properly is their number one concern that they, often, they normally don't know how to express this, but then I'll usually ask them the question. And the moment I ask them the question, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. The question I usually ask them is the problem that you feel like you're having with your husband is that he has no accountability, that there's no one over him, that there's, that there's nobody speaking into his life. And they're like, yeah, that's it. I feel like not even God is his accountability. Like, bingo, that's the problem. Your husband's living like the way most dudes live, is they live as if they're God under themselves and that there is no accountability. But what Jesus is saying, and if you listen to what the message that Jesus is trying to say, is that his kingdom is growing. It's moving. It's going somewhere. Ultimately, it's going to a moment of harvest, of judgment. Do you know that? Do you see that? Do you understand that? You realize that this kingdom is actually heading somewhere. There is a judgment someday in the future that we will stand before this God. We will be accountable to this God. We are not ends in of ourselves. That's part of the problem of our lives. 
is we think we are. We live as if we're the end of ourselves. We treat other people as if they are our personal slaves. And when people don't treat us with dignity and respect and value the way that we expect them to, it's one of the reasons why sometimes we get exceedingly angry. Some of you men, perhaps, have a very bad temper. The reason why, perhaps, you let loose and you have a very bad temper. Because really, at the end of the day, I'll let you in on a little secret, you think you're God and you're very angry when people don't treat you that way. It's a God problem. It's an idolatry problem. It's not that you, you know, are Irish, all right? It's not that your dad was a blue-collar worker. It's that you have an idolatry problem. You see yourself as God. And you're frustrated because other people don't identify that. And you feel entitled to dignity and value and respect, and they didn't show it to you. But the reality is, is that when we live our lives as if we are the end in of ourselves, we live our lives with this attitude. But what Jesus does by saying this ought to sober us if we believe it. Or as Jesus would say, if we have ears to hear. That this kingdom grows automatically and that this kingdom ultimately is moving at some point forward to a judgment. Now, what Jesus is going to say next in the next little parable is this. In verse 30, 34, he's going to tell us that this kingdom actually grows steadily and that will ultimately lead to a blessing. So on the one hand, this kingdom grows automatically and will lead to a judgment. But that the second parable is about how the kingdom grows steadily, slowly, but steadily, and will ultimately lead to a universal blessing. So, with that being said, is that there is a time that Jesus says in the future when some will be judged and some will enter into God's rest. Time of blessing and a time of judgment. We don't like hearing this type of stuff. We don't at all like talking about this type of stuff. But the reality is, this is what Jesus is saying. We have to pay heed. This is one of the benefits, honestly, I would say, or lack of benefits, maybe depending upon how you view this type of stuff, of just teaching through the Bible, just teaching through books in the Bible, letting the text speak to us. Because normally, if we're just looking for nice little verses that make us feel good, we probably would not choose passages like this to go through or to study. But the point of the matter is, Jesus said it. We have to deal with it, wrestle with it, no matter how difficult it is, maybe to swallow and seek to align our lives in accordance with it. Or what ends up happening is, again, like I said, automatically we fall back into this mode whereby we're God, we become selected of what we want to hear, what we want to follow, and what ends up happening is we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we have is Christianity, but we don't have Christianity, we have pseudo-Christianity because we've cut and pasted things together, what we like, what we dislike, we just get rid of, and we call ourselves religious. But the point of the matter is, is that's not the life that Jesus wants for us, that's not the life that actually leads to joy. So what Jesus does is he calls us to pay attention to how his kingdom is moving forward. So secondly, he wants us to see that his kingdom grows steadily and will ultimately lead to a divine blessing. And Mark chapter 4, verse 30 says this. And then he said, with what shall I compare the kingdom of God and what parable shall I use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it's sown in the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches, large branches, so that the birds of the air can make its nest in its shade. And what Jesus wants us, I think, to understand here, again, like I said, is that his kingdom grows steadily, but then ultimately grows into a universal blessing. Now, this does not mean that everyone's going to be saved. This is, does not mean that everybody on the planet is just somehow going to find themselves in the right place. This is part of God's judgment to some God will basically say, in fact, one of the greatest forms of judgment that God can actually say to his own image bearers is, I made you in my image, yet you have chosen, you choose to reject, to resist me. You want to follow after your own hearts, your own desires, your own faulty desires. One of the greatest forms of judgment that God can ever say to us is then your will be done. Let you do what you want to do. That's a horrible path to place to go, to be a part of. But what Jesus is saying is that with his kingdom as it goes forth, there will come a point where there will be this universal blessing. So what Jesus does in this little parable is he wants us to understand that it grows steadily. So even though the seed is planted in the ground, it grows slowly but surely. 
Not overnight. You don't wake up in the morning and there see this big, massive tree. It grows slowly, surely, steadily, but it grows. It's going somewhere. It's doing something. Even though necessarily you're not watching the actual progress and growth of this particular uh, plant, it is surely, certainly growing. What Jesus wants us to understand finally, though, is that this tiny little seed of mustard grows to become this big, gigantic plant in which birds come and fly and find shade in. Now, what Jesus does here, again, he borrows from Old Testament passages to prove his point. Again, he uses hypertext. I'll give an example. There's probably at least two passages that Jesus borrows from the Old Testament. They both come from the prophets. Uh, One of them is Daniel. The other is by a guy by the name of Ezekiel. I'll read the passage from Ezekiel and make some statements on it. Here's what he says. In Ezekiel chapter 17, the prophet prophesied of a day at some point in the future, and here's the way he describes it. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant a small twig that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel prophesies of a day when this tree, seemingly very small, it will be planted in Israel. It will grow, and it will then begin to grow into this big, massive, universal tree that will ultimately be a place of blessing. It's interesting, but in the end of the book, end of the book of Revelation, you begin to see that at the center of all things is the tree. The tree that God designed, the tree of life. That there's a tree, that this concept, this idiom, this metaphor, this picture of tree is life-giving. It gives life to the nations. The story that is chronicled or perhaps drawn from in the book of Daniel, again, very similar. It's this idea that everything is moving towards this place where there will be fruit there will be fruitfulness it will all come from this tree it's this idea that this tree has its source in heaven but yet it comes down to earth and is planted on this earth so that heaven and earth literally intersect that's the point that jesus is making that there will come a day when heaven and earth will collide and when they collide when they come together when they unite life will happen People will be transformed. This desert wasteland, we call this earth. This broken place, this broken down trailer park, we call earth. It's our home that's broken. It's hurting. It's destroyed. Jesus said, one day I will bring restoration. I'll bring healing. This tree, the tree of life, will bring healing. So here's what Jesus is saying. My kingdom, it's like that. It starts out small. I mean, who would have ever thought I mean, if you were to ask, you know, people of the day, interview them in the streets around the Sea of Galilee, what do you think about Jesus? He's got 12 guys that are following him. A couple of them are, you know, fishermen. One guy is a tax collector. One guy, he's a zealot, meaning he's like a modern-day terrorist. All of these guys are following Jesus. One guy, he's on the other team, but he doesn't know it yet. His name's Judas. He's going to betray everybody. The whole thing's going to go down. All sorts of bad things are going to happen. Ultimately, this Jesus is going to die. And typically, dead saviors make failed saviors. And so the reality is, if you were to ask anybody at the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry, do you see any potential for this? I think most people would be like, no way. There's nothing good about this. It's small. It's insignificant. It's along the seashores of Galilee, which is not a major metropolis. There's not a lot happening, right, in Sea of Galilee, it's like, you know, someone's like, you know what, I'm going to launch a worldwide radical, like, ministry. I'm going to go start it off at Lake Lopez. Really? Like, that's not where you typically think about starting a ministry. You don't go to Lopez where there's not that many people there anyhow. Go start your ministry and somehow assume you're going to reach the world. That's what Jesus is doing. He's starting off in sort of this very remote place, this totally unexpected area with a bunch of very not well-educated guys And it's this small little group of people that Jesus is going to literally turn the world upside down with. Everything will be changed through this small little group of people. It will start small, it will begin to gradually grow, and it will begin as it will go on to this point at some point in the future whereby this tiny little movement will be the very movement that all the prophets prophesied. It will be the tree, the tree that will bring blessing universally to all.
This is important. This is what Jesus wants us to see, is that this is what his kingdom's like. This is where it's going. This is what it's doing. This is how things will change. I want to finish with basically three things, and we'll just kind of wrap it up with this. Just kind of some practical conclusions, some thoughts to kind of wrap things up with. The first thing really is to consider this, that we don't want to mistake the slowness of the growth of God's kingdom for its impotence or non-existence. Uh, that's a big sentence. It uses really big words. You're welcome. And I'll try to break it down for you because I just couldn't think of any other way to say it or identify it. Here's what I mean. Basically, it goes like this. Sometimes when we see the slowness of God doing things in this planet, on this earth, we're tempted to think one of two things. We're tempted to think God's not powerful. He can't do something. Maybe he's got good intentions. Maybe his desire's there. Maybe he really wants things to be better, but he can't. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the ability. He's impotent. He can't do it. That's the way some people think. God's just impotent. That maybe the church, Christianity, has had high hopes at the ages and a big God, but in reality, he's not a big God. He's a small God. Or maybe he's a big God with a big heart, but very limited power and resources. Because look at the world. Pretty messed up. There's wars people dying, diseases, maybe is really not powerful. Or we typically look at this world and we think the slowness, there is no real true evidence of God's kingdom, so maybe it's non-existent. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it's not there. Maybe it's just an illusion. Maybe it's not real. But here's the point. When we look at the slowness of what God's doing in this world, when we look at oftentimes things that are happening in this world, we typically can look at this and think, where is God? How come God is not showing up? How come things happen in this world that are devastating? Why is it that you know, one big tsunami can come in and wipe out 200,000 people? Where is God? Is God absent? How come you know, people are dying in countries in the Middle East or in areas in other parts of the world from starvation and suffering? And what about the global sex trade? And what about all of these other things or Children that are, you know, under the age of 10 getting cancer and dying. What about all of these things? And we're prone to think that maybe God's powerless or God's kingdom really just doesn't exist. But here's what basically Peter wants to write to New Testament believers. He says this. Scoffers will come in the last day saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation. What Peter's basically addressing in his day, he uses the phrase in the latter days. Don't get hung up on that word latter days and think this is, you know, what Peter's saying is that in his day, he identified that day as being the last days. In the book of Acts, when they asked him, what's going on? There seems to be some sort of crazy outpouring of the Spirit, and Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the latter days, God would do all of these things. So the phrase, latter days, is basically a technical term that's used throughout the Bible to basically date from the time that Jesus, is, Jesus resurrected from the dead or ascended into heaven to the time that Jesus comes again. We call it typically the second coming. So this long period of time, at least we know so far, it's 2,000 years. It could keep going on. We have no idea. We really don't know. But the point of the matter is, is that at least over the past 2,000 years, there have been all sorts of people that have asked the question, where's God's kingdom? Why do things continue to keep going as they have always gone? Death, disease, destruction, brokenness, hurt, pain. Where's God? Where's the promise of God's coming? What Peter says, be careful that that's not you. Be careful that that is not the frame of mind that you fall into, that you begin to scoff and you mock. What Mark wants us to identify through the words of Jesus is that even though God's kingdom moves slow, it moves surely. It moves certainly. And it will change everything. And this is why Peter finishes this little section here. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come. Jesus will come. It's important to note that what I think the way the New Testament teaches this is that as God moves his kingdom forth, that we are not necessarily the ones building the kingdom. We may be building for the kingdom. We're not building the kingdom. God gifts a kingdom to us. And God's moving this kingdom forward. We have an opportunity to be a part of this. But the point of the matter is, is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much Christians are able to advance 
Christianity, what's ultimately probably not going to happen is that this world will not continue to get better and better and more Christianized. There have been periods throughout the history of the church that people have attempted this experiment to try to Christianize everybody, to bring them into a place where they're all Christians, to baptize them, to bring them into some sort of creedal awareness or some sort of creedal unity. But the point of the matter is that that really doesn't work at the end of the day. But what Jesus is saying is that ultimately there will come a point where I will come again. And when I come again, I will change things. And I will begin to ultimately bring about the final realization of my kingdom. It will happen. Let me pause and say this real quick. The bottom line is this, is that everything in this life is always slowly, gradually moving away from us. Maybe some of you haven't noticed this yet. Because some of us, for example, we can look at our lives, we take a look at maybe our health, our looks, our strength, and we look at our lives and we think, I have a lot of it. You're very strong, you're very healthy, you've got good looks. We typically call that 20s, all right? The reality is, is that at some point, those things will begin to slip away from you. Quicker with others, slower with others still. But the point of the matter is, for example, just those three things I identified All of those, at some point, are slowly moving away from you. You can't always hold on to them. Health, for example. Some of you are healthy right now, and you feel like you will always be healthy. Don't let that be a delusion to you. At some point, health will escape you. You will not always be healthy. At some point, you will find yourself fighting for your own life. Your looks. Some of you are good-looking. Some of you have the looks now. But at some point, those also will slip away from you. All of these things slip away from us. The very things that we so oftentimes value, health, strength, looks, will slip away from us. Take a look at even, for example, relationships. Relationships, as good as they are, as much as we enjoy them, they are always on a slow, gradual path of slipping away from us. For some, it's faster. You go out with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you're with them for six months, that's a fast relationship. It's gone very quickly. For others, for example, like me, I'm going on 21 years of marriage. I've known my wife since I was 16. It's over well over half of my life. I've been with my wife. She's been my best friend throughout the majority of my life. But the reality is, as we go forward, we are slowly, gradually drifting away. Not emotionally. We love each other. But the reality is, at some point, we will part. One of us will die. We have a hope that one day we'll be reunited. So it's a great hope. My prayer, oftentimes, is God, take my wife first. I pray that she dies first. I do. That's actually a prayer request of mine. Because one of these days, I would hate to be the one to die first and have my wife be the one to deal with all the loss. I'd rather her die first, go to be with Jesus, and I'll pick up the pieces. But the reality is at some point, we will part Everything in this life is slowly but gradually leaving our grasp. It's the same thing with money. Money leaves us very quickly, though, doesn't it? The point of the matter is that everything in this life is slowly but gradually pulling away from us. It's a trajectory. It's always moving away. The harder you fight to hold on to it, the quicker it leaves you. That's one of the reasons why Jesus is saying, look, if you build your life with those things as your anchors, then what will you do when they're gone? Some of you don't take that into consideration. You build your whole life based upon the strength of your youth. You build your whole life based upon your looks. You build your whole life based upon your money that you have in your bank or how much brains that you have or how smart you are or how strong you are or all the things that you have. And if you build your life with those things as being the anchors of your life, what happens when they're gone? Because gone, at some point, they will flee from you. Or you can look at the kingdom that Jesus is building and saying it will always keep growing, keep going, keep being established, and it will grow to become this big monster tree of which all will feed. So what are you anchoring your life in? The things of this world that are slowly but surely pulling away? of the kingdom that God is establishing through his son. So Jesus, secondly, the thing I want to take a look at is that you know, we can place confidence in God's word really because ultimately we'll bear fruit. This is the second thing I want you to just you want to think about. We can totally place our confidence in God's word because we know we'll always bear fruit. 
Again, Jesus makes his little parable. He says, the sower goes out, sows seed, and it grows. It always grows. Um, earlier in chapter 4, Jesus tells this very long parable. We typically call it the parable of the soils or parable of the sower. It's this guy who sows seed and some falls by the wayside, some falls on the ground, and some falls on good soil. And It's really a parable not about seed, but it's a parable about soil, how you receive the seed. And so really in each of those cases, the seed grows, but one of the cases, the seed actually gets sucked up or taken up by the birds of the air and they pick it up and actually it's funny I was talking to some guy afterwards one of the services here this morning and he was just like you know when a bird picks up the seed he just relocates it so you'll get that on your way home the point of the matter is that Jesus's seed the word will always always grow always some of you kind of wonder like why 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 does Calvary slow have a guy yell at me for an hour all right, let me just say something a little bit about the DNA of who we are and what we feel very firmly about. One of the reasons why we preach God's word and teach God's word and focus and spend a lot of time in God's word is because we really truly believe that God's word changes us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. That God's word does take root in our lives and begin to change us. And some of you would object and say, you know what, I don't even remember what the sermon was last week. And it's very rare for me to ever even really remember any of the points that you make. So why even bother going? Why even bother subjecting myself to the guy yelling at me with a bad haircut for an hour? What's, what's the point of that? Why even go? Let me just put it this way. Let me ask you this question back. How many of you remember the food you ate two nights ago? Right? Or the breakfast you ate this morning? Dinner you had last night? The reality is most of us can't even remember the meals that we had. We don't think about it. Some of you are like, I had mac and cheese. Like, okay, that's great. But the reality is, what would you have a week ago? I mean, do you even remember what you had a week ago? Like, most of us don't. We don't think about it. In fact, if you were to even press it further, most of us would say there's only a handful of meals throughout your entire life that you can actually say, I really remember that. For me, most of those meals surround red meat that's barbecued, bacon, and, and sushi. Like, that's, that, those, are, those are the meals for me that have been the most meaningful for me around you know, some good friendships and good company and just hanging out and have a good long meal. I love those times. And those meals are actually very amazing. And it's far more than just simply being nourishing for me. It's just being able to enjoy it. But the reality is, sometimes if we look at the fact of like, you know, why go to Bible study? Why listen to the preaching? Why hear this guy yell at me for an hour? Why do all these things? Because let me put it this way. In the same way that food is nourishment to you, and just because you don't always analyze or note every type of food that you've ever had or remember every meal that you had, let me put it this way. If you did not eat, you would die. You would notice the absence of it. But it's the same thing with the Word of God. You might not remember every sermon. You might not even remember hardly any of the points. I mean, if, like, but the same way, like, remembering meals but the point of the matter is that it's nourishment to you it's nourishment to your soul it's life-giving to you that's the point is that god's word is like a seed it grows in us it changes us this is why my advice to you guys my encouragement to you my exhortation really to you guys would be don't slow down on feeding yourself in god's word i mean most of us in this room probably have an iphone or some sort of multimedia device or some sort of mp3 player I always encourage people. One of the things I do a lot is I download lots of podcasts and lots of sermons and lots of audiobooks. And I love going on bike rides. I love going on runs. And I love doing all sorts of sports activities and things of that nature. I love even just going on long rides, drives, just for the purpose of, like, listening to something. The point I would challenge you guys with is take advantage. I mean, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sermons that you guys can download for free on the Internet. Where you, where you can be getting God's word into your heart, listening to things, being challenged by things. Some of you might be like, I'm not even remembering any of the sermons. It doesn't matter. It's feeding your soul. I mean, if I were to go back over the history of the literally probably hundreds of thousands of hours of sermons I've listened to over my life, there's a lot of them I just don't remember, but I've been nourished by all of them. Like God uses his word spoken to me, read to me, 
to change me, to transform me. And I want to be changed. I want to know God. I want to see God. I want my heart, my mind to be transformed and conformed into his image. And that God's word is like the seed that will always grow. One of the last things I would say about this is very significant. Is that it will always bear fruit in your life. Don't slow down on feeding on God's word. Take time throughout your day at some point. Just be in God's word. Read it to yourself. Put scriptures in places where you can see them. Figure out some sort of means in some sort of way. Don't turn it into some sort of legalism. I mean, in other words, don't get to this habit that says, if I don't read my Bible, I'm not doing good with Jesus, and maybe God's upset with me. That's legalism. Don't do that. But look at it as an opportunity of sowing seed into your heart that we know, that we know, that we know it will actually bear fruit and grow because that's what God's seed, God's word does, is it brings forth nourishment and life to us. The final thing I want to finish on is with this. We need to know that God's salvation is really ultimately about a kingdom in which he's king. That's what God's salvation is ultimately about. Jesus is a king. Jesus has a kingdom. In other words, to maybe put it another way, if there's a kingdom, parables of the kingdom, then there's got to be a king to which this thing points to. And this king has a kingdom, this domain. Now, first of all, this really entails two things. First of all, it points out to us that really this kingdom is not primarily about you. Now, in a lot of ways, Westernized Christianity has become very self-centered. In a lot of ways, it's sort of a direct reaction against things that have happened over in the past in church history. And there's been a major focus, reshift the focus that basically says, look, it's about you and having a personal relationship with God. Let me say this. It's not less than you having a personal relationship with God or God dealing with the alienation that you had with him. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. That part of God's kingdom is, yes, it is to restore you. Yes, it is to change you. But it's far more than that. It's for God to begin to restore and change the cosmos, the world. See, here's what happens. When we sin, not only are we alienated God from God, but when we sin, we're also alienated from other people. In other words, our sin also causes direct consequences upon this planet, upon this world. And what we read in our Bible is that at the end of the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, what we see is when everything is finally done, what we don't see is we don't see this big, massive horde of people called the church leaving this planet, going to some spirit realm called heaven, and spending eternity up there. That's not what we read. What we actually read in the end of the book is heaven coming to this earth and renewing everything. When Jesus rose again from the dead, how did he rise? Into a spirit body? No. He rose into a physical body. Why? Because God loves this physical world. And his purpose is to restore it, to renew it, to bring heaven to earth, to restore it. And so what that means basically is this, is that God cares about people that go hungry. And if we do something about that, God cares about that. Because everything in this universe is moving towards a place where God will one day restore those that are broken, those that are hurting, those that are sick and diseased, hunger, God will completely do away with. War, famine, God will do away with. God will restore that. And if we as God's image bearers, renewed in his likeness and image, understand the global purposes of his kingdom, then every single time that we see people that are hungering or hurting or thirsting or challenged or in pain, and we go out of our way to heal them, to help them, to feed them, to quench their thirst, we're actually doing kingdom work. It's one of the reasons why Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name is as if it's being done to me. The final thing is this, is that really this kingdom is about, it's about God. It's ultimately about God. Salvation is about a king. It's about a kingdom. It's about God. How do you enter into a relationship with a king? Important question. How do we enter into a relationship with a king? You don't primarily enter into a relationship with a king because he makes you happy or because he fulfills your needs. You don't go to a king and say, I want to be in a relationship with you because you make me happy, because you will satisfy my needs. Though Jesus will do that. He will satisfy you. 
He will take care of your needs. But the way that you enter into a relationship with a king and the reason why you enter into a relationship with a king is because it's what's right. He's king. Let me put it this way. If Jesus is not king, then what does any of this matter? What does it matter at all how you live your life? What does it matter how you treat other people? If there is no king, there is no authority over you, there is no day of judgment, there is no accountability to a creator, then what does any of this matter? But if Jesus is a king, you don't come to Jesus as a king negotiating on your terms. You don't come to him bargaining with him. You don't come to him treating him as if he's a good or a service. You come to him humbly. You come to him on bended knee. And you take the sword that you've used in your life against him and against his own image bearers. And you surrender that sword to him with the blade facing you in the hilt towards God in an act of humble submissiveness saying, God, this is yours. I give you everything. It's a state of vulnerability in your life whereby you submit and humble yourself to God. And in that state, you're basically saying, God, you take this sword. I'm trusting you with this sword not to destroy me. It's that level of confidence and trust that you have to have in God. That's what it's all about to be a Christian. It boils down to this, that when we surrender to God, when we come to Him, we basically are coming to Him relinquishing control of our lives. That's what we do. So we relinquish control of the very things that controlled us, our sex. We bring the sex to God and we say, God, this is yours now. We come to God and we bring the power the power tripping that we've had. We bring that to God. We bring our strength to God. We bring our vocation to God. We even bring our very identity to God. For some of us, that is so incredibly, exhaustingly scary because that's all you know. And if you get rid of that and you drop that off, then what are you left with? You have nothing. But it's an act of confidence Jesus as king. And one of the things you'll discover that when you surrender and you give these things to Jesus, what he does is he takes them. He takes your sex. He takes your power and your power tripping and your authoritarian attitudes. He takes your vocation. He takes your identity. And you know what he does? He reorders it according to his kingdom and he gives it back to you. So the sex that was once given to you and you abused and you used it for your own purposes, and you left yourself defiled and broken and hurting, or you left others defiled, broken, and hurting, what Jesus does is he gives it back to you, and he says, sex is my gift to you, so that it would be used in a marriage, in a relationship, in a commitment, in a covenant, and what you'll discover, that sex in that context, not only brings you great joy, but also brings great joy to your spouse and break brings great glory to God. So the very thing that ultimately became your identity, relinquished to God, God reorders, gives it back to you, and it becomes a basis of joy for you. What other God does that? He's a good king. He's a very good king. He's come to reorder things. So with you, how do you view Jesus? Is he your king? How do we know any of this is true? How do we know that God will do what he says? How do we know that if we surrender ourselves to God, he won't crush us? How do we know that God's word has any power? The greatest evidence that we have is that Jesus identifies himself as the word. And what God has done is he's been gracious enough to give us these little hints, these little echoes in all creation of his most masterful work. Seed time and harvest. Every time you take a seed, place it in the ground, it dies. Something miraculous happens. Life comes out. Jesus himself was the seed that died, was planted in the ground, three days later, rose again. That's how we know. God means what he says. That Jesus talked about a judgment. That first, yes, a judgment came. But the judgment that Jesus came to bring about, Jesus came not to bring judgment, but ultimately to bear judgment, to bear your judgment. 
to bear your judgment. That's the type of king he is. He bears your judgment. He comes not to afflict you, but to take your affliction for you, to be afflicted on behalf of you. That's the king that Jesus is. He's a good king. He's a king that actually you can fully trust with your life. And he won't destroy you. He'll reorder you. He'll reorganize you. It may be painful to some degree at some point because sometimes giving up things that have become our identity can feel very painful. But at the end of the day, the very hand of God that wounds us is also the very hand that heals us. You need to know this. This is the king that we have. I want to finish up right now, and we're going to sing a song and just kind of wrap it up. But before we are finished, I'm going to have Shadi coming up. He'll get ready. But what I want to do right now is I want to just close with this by asking some of you. Some of you right now, you're wrestling with this whole concept of Jesus being king because you struggle, because you see yourself as king. You've acted as king. You've operated as king. You've had your own little kingdom, your domain, in which you've sought to exercise your authority, your power, your might, your reins. And I really believe Jesus wants to deal with our hearts, and the way that he deals with our hearts is by humbling ourselves before him. I just want to simply ask, if there's anybody here right now in any particular way, I mean, you may be a Christian, and this might be speaking directly to you. You might not be a Christian. You might be someone that's here. You're not a Christian at all. You've never bent your knee to Jesus. You never trusted in him. But somehow something that's said tonight just made sense to you, and you see him as king, and you realize that if he is a king, you can't come negotiating with him. You've got to come humbling yourself before him. And if that's you here tonight, for anything that's going on in your life, you just look at this great king that Jesus is and his kingdom that he's come to establish, that it's moving forward. You can't stop it. It's moving forward slowly, but it's moving forward surely. It's heading towards judgment, but it's ultimately heading towards great universal blessing. And you want to surrender your heart to this king tonight. You want to just, for whatever things that are going on in your life, there's just things that you realize I need to just surrender to this king. If that's you, would you stand right where you're at? All I want to do is pray for you. Again, like I said, you could be a Christian struggling with stuff and just realize there's things in your heart that Jesus is asking of you and you got to let go of. Some of you, it's, you're not a Christian. Some of you, cool. Thanks for saying it's tough. It's always tough, but this is the way we deal with them. And for some of you, it's like, you know, it's just another Bible study. It's good and hopefully God spoke to you. For some of you, this is insane. This is like some intense stuff for you. You're really wrestling with this. Some of the things that you're looking at in your life, they've just become your identity. They've become what have marked you as who you are. And you know that if you anchor your life upon those things, because they're moving away, when they're gone, where are you going to be? You'll be lost. That's exactly the word that describes ultimate judgment is lost. Jesus doesn't want you to be lost. He wants to be found. And he's the only king, the only God that would ever go out of his way to seek and save, to rescue those that are lost. Anybody else? Stand right where you're at. just want to pray for you. That's all we're going to do. Thanks. Cool. Good job. Anybody else? Stand right where you're at. just going to pray for you. Nothing weird. It's just you basically saying, I need to surrender these things. It's king. I'm not. I don't want to be. I want him to be. If you're sitting next to someone that's standing, would you guys just lay hands on them right now? There's some people maybe standing in the back. Yeah, there you go. Just make sure that everyone who's standing has someone laying hands on them. This is nothing weird about this is what we're just simply doing is we're just saying we're here for you we're body people just like your people we struggle we have our own challenges we all wrestle with stuff we're all in this together the beauty of it is is that Jesus came in this world came one of us became a human struggled suffered was victorious give us life I'm going to pray for you guys and we're going to sing a song we're going to finish up God, right now, I just want to pray for those that are standing, those that recognize there are some areas in their life, whatever they might be, that are out of sync with you, and you want to reorder them. You want to reorganize them. 
according to your kingdom, according to your reign. God, I pray right now that you would just cause there to be a, a sense of just humbleness that we recognize that you're king and we're not. And that we would humble ourselves before you and we would surrender the things before you to you, the things that have been holding on to us, those things that have been plaguing us, those things really at the end of the day have been oppressing and crushing us. So, Father, I just pray for those that have stood, those that have just recognized and identified these areas in their life that they need to just surrender and confess and recognize you, Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, just fall upon them. Give them the power. Give them the strength that they need to trust you, to walk with you, to find joy in you. God, I thank you that you've given us everything that we need to love you, to serve you, to walk after you, to live this Christian life. So, Father, help these that are standing. Help those that perhaps even feel themselves bound. They're in the orbit of some sort of sinful habit or some sort of pattern of life that they feel is that they, they, they no longer have control over it, but rather it has control over them. God, I pray right now that you would break those things. It may be a drug addiction. It may even be some form of sickness. God, I pray that you would just break those things over them right now and set these people free. Jesus, that's what you've done. You've come to break every bond that holds us bound, and you've come to set us free. And the way that you did that was that, Jesus, you yourself were bound so that we who are bound can be set free. Jesus, you came into this world and you suffered the same suffering so that we who suffer can find joy, freedom from anxiety. So God, fall upon these people that are standing here right now. God, even right now as we sing, pray that you just help us to focus our attention upon the greatness and the power of our God. It's mighty to save.